Eternal tension. So what is a comedian's job? What is a comedian supposed to do? I suppose my ideal comedian is one who is perfectly able to balance the tension between shitposting and snowflakery. And this is an eternal tension. It must never be resolved. It is a tightrope I have devoted my life to walking. See, if the tension collapses into pure snowflakery, you get a moralist who might say that a comedian's purpose is to promote justice by punching up, by speaking truth to power, by exposing the flaws of bigoted mindsets, and so on. And these are all very admirable goals, but they leave out what I think is the essential purpose of comedy, which is to be funny, to surprise, to shock, to make people laugh. It's kind of like how some art and media critics only ever evaluate a work based on whether or not it's socially progressive and don't seem to really think about aesthetic pleasure very much, which to me is the reason why art exists in the first place. But then again, I am a hedonistic bourgeois decadent. This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that's by and for hedonistic bourgeois slash bourgeois decadence. H. Maud is a barely legal podcast about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and produced by David Slavic. You were just listening to a clip from the latest video essay by ContraPoints titled The Darkness. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, I thought we'd briefly introduce ourselves and the pod. I teach at Osgood Hall Law School, which is in Toronto, where I research and write in the areas of sexuality and the law, political violence and international law, as well as criminal law. I am, I think, what we'd call a toddler law prof. I've been at Osgood for two years now. Before that, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the British Academy in London. Before that, I spent some time as a postdoc in Berlin. And before that, I spent seven years completing my doctoral degree at Harvard Law School. I've also worked at a couple of the international criminal tribunals, including in The Hague and Sierra Leone. David is my new American husband. You might know him as a producer at The Michael Brooks Show. He's a former think tank staffer and a fellow law school graduate. With this show, David and I are trying to do something very different. We're interested in bringing you rigorous analysis of hotly contested current ideas about justice and society that's digestible from the perspective of a general audience as well as a specialist legal audience. We also want to have a hell of a lot of fun doing it. As you'll see, we're monsters. If you enjoy the pod, please do take a moment to like it, share it on social media, write a review, etc., etc. Today's episode is, I think, really special. In it, David and I have a delicious and wide-ranging chat with Toronto-based writer and sometimes academic Cliff Mark. We cover Cliff's very hot new piece in Aeon magazine titled, A Belief in Meritocracy is Not Only False, It's Bad for You. To date, this piece has had over 9,000 Facebook shares. We also talk about his recent standout article on ContraPoints in The Atlantic. We explain why you're not wrong when you self-diagnose with imposter syndrome I come to terms with the politics of my edgelord identity. See what I did there? Cis man David has a trans expression. Cliff explains Socratic pickup culture in ancient Athens and why, at the end of the day, you don't deserve anything you have. And if you think you do, you're an asshole. Stay tuned. Hi, Cliff. Welcome. Thanks. Hi, Heidi. How's it going, Cliff? Great. How are you? I'm well. You're off the wine for Lent? Off the wine for Lent. Off the smokes? Off the smokes. Wow. Quit instant messaging. <laughs> no texting, no WhatsApp, are... no messenger. No. Yeah. What about the Tinder? I've been like off that for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. So, um, so Cliff and I are good friends who... <laughs> have just met in person but how do we meet we met um, that was like a couple years ago yeah we matched on tinder Mm -hmm. and i kept deleting my account and re-entering and then probably rematching i think that happened like five times and we'd be like hey 
But then we never met. Yeah, but then we never go on dates. <laughs> but we had like uh, I looked at our mutuals, and I was like, oh, they're all fucking geniuses, <laughs> right? It was like Sam Moyne and like Lucas Stanchik. Who else? PhD Harvard guys, women, yeah. whoever. Right. And I was like, all right, so. So I can. can this is, no, this is. I, I definitely should like. I want to talk to this person. Uh-huh. <laughs> and here we are, years later. Twitter wow. jokes, amazing, interesting uh, pop pieces of the eminent professor Heidi Matthews trolling people on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to have you. So I'm, we're just gonna have fun. I think that's okay. I'll, I'll um, judge. So you wrote a piece. So you're. I, I, I want. I mean, ordinarily, I record these intros like after the fact, and it's this like paragraph, and I'm like, this is the person, and they're a professor, and here's their job. But I'd kind of want you to just tell me who you are, yeah, and who I'm, the background is, and that you yeah. reach some kind of rejection. But that's my total projection onto you. Okay. So, but what I'd love to have thinking, that discussion. What piece are you talking about? So it's not a piece in particular, but I. So all the stuff you've been uh-huh. writing. So you write for you write for the CBC. Yeah. I mean, tell people what you do. You're a writer here in Toronto. You're writing for a whole bunch of different sorts of outlets. You're also probably going to be starting a podcast. Right. So, yeah, so my main your, thing yeah, is I write for CBC Life. That's where I'm publishing most stuff. So it's a lot of assignments. It's lifestyle writing. So yeah, I became a relationship guru. That's I published awesome. like 12 articles about relationships last year. What was your favorite one? I think Why They're Not In Love With You or Why They Don't Love You know Anymore. I interviewed Hel- Helen Fisher, a big shot scientist, anthropologist about relationships. All of them are about like rejection and like <laughs> what happens to your brain if you're heartbroken and stuff. Oh. Um but like I wasn't that depressed. They were mostly assignments. Oh, okay. <laughs> so have uh, you did you survive all of this being undepressed? Well, I don't like I had a very negative outlook, but when I speak to people with actual depression, that's right. not my experience. Right. A facts based negativity. No, no. Like yeah. <laughs> it was probably my worst mood and most prolonged. Like the right when there's that May, I don't know. I don't know what your path was. So I don't know how many yeah. jobs you applied for and didn't get, or how much like uncertainty you had. Yeah. Post PhD. Yeah. But I call. Yeah, we can talk about it. I think it needs to be talked about actually, yeah. and not just for us to have fun, although it is that. But it there's a real and I, and I say this because I spent today like in I spent two hours in an appointments committee meeting, right. and I think like having. And I was put on the faculty appointments committee the year after I was hired, which was a, obviously a great experience and everything, uh-huh. but also like hugely traumatizing. <laughs> so we we're going to talk about luck um, and the meritocracy in a bit when we get to one of your pieces substantively. But I think this is a nice maybe lead into that. So the idea that you know we're you're sitting in an appointments committee and you've got the CV and a person is clearly superior because we have a set of metrics and they've met the metrics. And whatever, and you, and everyone knows. Mm-hmm. And now, my, I have to say, I have no complaints. Literally, the happiest. I, I, it's disgusting. I should be shot. The happiest academic there probably is in terms of where <laughs> I landed and my faculty and my colleagues and everything. But you're all, we're all kind of sitting. Well, I shouldn't say we all because there's this clear generational sh- gaps and dynamics, right? So there's this notion that's more readily accepted by people older than me that it, that in other words, they buy into the meritocracy for all the reasons you talk about in your piece, I think, in a more, in a, in an easier way, right? So they just buy into the idea that these metrics actually, right. in other words, merit, okay. right? And I think kind of, or at least for my part, I don't want to speak for my younger colleagues, but um, I, you know, I've been on faculty for two years now, right? And so I'm one of the youngest colleagues there. And I just feel like, oh no, it depends on how much false consciousness we're all entertaining, right? But like for me, at least, I'm just sitting there going, I know that in some senses matters, like we have, and because the person's put in the effort, uh-huh. not because the effort in and of itself is good, but like they, there's, there should be something at the end of playing the game. Do you know what I mean? So like the person has played the game that in some sense should be rewarded, rewarded, Which but person? like anyone coming up for a faculty position, okay. right? right? Like no one in particular, one has played a game. I did this, you did this, we all did this. One has played, participated in the game according to the rules of the game to a certain degree. We've also tried to be intellectually honest and creative and whatever and actually say something one hopes. But at the end of the day, it's all a little bullshit and or maybe a lot bullshit. 
and not in anyone, any individual's interest, a highly irrational endeavor, if you know what I mean. So the level of risk that we assume to even get to the position where you can apply for an academic job is like a little crazy. Yeah. It's depending on where you come from. Like, do you, I don't know, do you come from like family money? Okay. Yeah. Me neither. So like, cause like, no, but many people do. Right. right. And then, then that's a totally different scenario. I do tell people when like advising people yeah. usually to not do a PhD, I usually yeah. just ask them like, are you already rich? Exactly. Yeah. It still might be yeah. a no, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that, that does help. Cause if you're not, it's really that bad. Counts against you. Yeah. It, not only does not, it, sorry, it doesn't count against you. It counts against like me advising you to try it, try and be a prop. Oh, absolutely. So can you tell, so tell us about your uh, academia track related intellectual journey. So like, what'd you do? What'd you focus on? You wrote about duels, which is fucking amazing. Okay. So if yeah, this is like, what we're going to talk about first, it's a different introduction. <laughs> I did a PhD at Cambridge University after a master's at Oxford. I did a lectureship <laughs> at University of Saskatchewan teaching political theory. I did a, I was at the Center for Ethics doing a postdoc at U of T. That's a good school as far as this country goes, it's you know? It's pretty, it's really, it's a great uh, pedigree. Congrats. And then I washed out, <laughs> and now I'm publishing pieces on why meritocracy is bullshit. So you, Professor Matthews, don't go around thinking you deserve what you got. I, I absolutely do not. Don't I don't yeah. deserve it. Okay, yeah. well, good. But, but go back. The force of my philosophical reasons, obviously. <laughs> Um, so anyway, that's like, that's like a really, you know, all essentially true part of my story. I was trying to be an academic for a long time. Couldn't get a job one uh, after like three years of casual employment. So that's why I was asking you like yeah. where you started. Cause a lot of people who become like really great academics, I asked them like, how was it in the beginning? They're like, oh, you know, I was bouncing around for seven years doing like yeah. adjunct stuff yeah. or temporary contracts. And I'm like, during that, how did it look? Yeah. You know, how did it, you know, it was awful. Yeah. And you never know where you're going to live in six months, mm -hmm. if you're going to wind up having the job and you've already put in 15 years of study and, you know, you've really wrapped up in this and looking back on it. Yeah. It's like this survivor bias. Like, yeah, it was always going to work out, but well, two, out of, yeah, it does. two out of the three people in this room right now are ex adjuncts who have not found full employment in academia. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, David Slavic, they're piping in. Uh, he's want to do. <laughs> like, is survivor guilt a thing? I feel like I have survivor guilt in a way because I don't actually deserve. Yeah, I worked really hard and stuff, but none of. I think the way to look at it's... it is, as I read, I struggle with that. Very good, yeah, is that the fact is that if you get out of a PhD program, you're deserving of a job. That's oh my god! Uh -huh. The fact is, is that you're just one of the deserving who got a job, and you can't view yourself as being. Like, you don't deserve it because other people who deserved it didn't get it. Right. No, See, I actually yes. disagree. I don't think okay. you deserve a job when you, if you went right. through the process. Okay, tell us about that. I think that, I mean, the process could be better. I just don't think that, you know, there's, there's very few jobs out there. Not everyone can have one. So just having done that, right, you don't deserve to get the prize just because you did the training to get into the contest. Right. Right. Do you say that based on the current kind of political economy that we're faced with or based on like some kind of abstract moral principle? Because <laughs> the idea mm. would be... <laughs> oh, well, okay. So here, I'm going to go as abstract as yeah. I can, which is yeah. I just don't think people deserve stuff in virtue of the work they did. I see. So this is applicable way broad, more broadly than academia, than just sort yeah. of who gets rich in the world or, you know undergrad admissions which is like a huge battleground for like merit and what people deserve and yeah. you know, what people work for yeah and i just don't think that in any like really important way people deserve what they get based on what they did beforehand that's really interesting so when i was writing notes earlier for a discussion and i said something like are you opposed to the notion of like morally speaking are you opposed to the notion of just desserts as a frame yes okay Great. Yeah. So I'd love, yeah, but I think that's really great. So I, so I should say the piece is coming out in Aeon in a couple of days. Yeah. yeah Do you know I'm what gonna, the title is? It's, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they titled it yet. I don't write the titles. Oh, okay. But that's right. Yeah. It should be something like meritocracy, wrong and bad. Or if you believe in meritocracy, you're not only wrong, you're an asshole. Right. But I mean, oh that's God. the, the, the just, argument of the, of the piece. Yeah. So yeah. it's supposed to come out March 8th yeah. in Aeon and 
Yeah. Yeah, that's what the argument is. When I, yeah, and I mean, undergirding that, I think, was this real obje- just objection to, like, just desserts in general. So, I mean, abstractly, philosophically, mm-hmm. if you wanted just desserts to be true, if you wanted, like, people to really deserve what they got, what would have to be true for that yeah. actually to be the case? You'd have to have, like, Adam out there naming a dollar price on every good and service that people deserve to get for producing it. Mm. Um, it just, like, doesn't exist in the real world. In, like, shorthand, if you look at all the distributive justice debates, like you do some political theory from the 80s and 90s, right? It was basically Rawls and all his friends saying, everyone should share more. And uh, then Nozick and like conservatives would be like, no, we shouldn't share more. We shouldn't share at all. Uh, Taxation of slavery. And Nozick, who's like the top philosopher of the don't share party, um, (laughs) he wouldn't even touch dessert, right? Because he knows it's philosophically incoherent. He'd say, if you want people to deserve thing, you have to have, you have to have a theory of what everything's worth, yeah. and people don't agree on that. So it's philosophically incoherent. So he went with a just as insane Lockean um, natural rights thing. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think it's philosophically incoherent. I think it's really really bad because people use meritocracy and desert as a way of just like justifying the massive inequalities that already exist. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, so in other words, just deserts as some sort of moral orientation is like a just dumb ideology among you know a whole host of others but but it's i mean it's a it's a great ideology yeah we can all think of examples where like look the person my co-worker doesn't do any work i deserve to get paid more than you. yeah it's unfair and it does make sense in this yeah yeah sure look there's common sense like to everything but i so what do you think matters then if it's not what we deserve or what we work for like in terms of your, tell me if this is the wrong question. You just want to answer another question. That's totally cool. But you're like moral orientation, right? And in terms of what we should. So the first part of your article explains why it's simply not the case that those who work, like factually speaking, uh-huh. it doesn't reflect, reflect reality in any meaningful sense that people get what they work towards. Right. Right? No. Okay. So what people want meritocracy to be yep. is like the opposite of aristocracy, uh-huh. you know? Oh, people were just, they, they get to they get to have all the money and all the power just because of how they were born, where they were born. It doesn't really matter who they are. It doesn't matter how much work they put in. It's just their name, who their parents are. And so meritocracy comes on. It's like, careers open to talents. You hustle. You have talent. You're smart. You can get what you deserve. Then we have this society where there's existing distributions. People are like, you know what? We got here because we worked hard and we have talent and we got what we deserve. That's objectionable on a lot of levels because one whether you have talent in the first place or whether you even have the ability to work hard is a lot down to genetics and your upbringing right like private education from age two and extracurricular lessons is going to get you into a good university Mm -hmm. a lot of the time Mm -hmm. so that is passed on by birth Mm -hmm. right and even things that aren't passed on by birth there's still just like this series of accidents that happen that make your life go one way or another that will put you in like a position of wealth or power after. And that's fine. But to say that like, there's something metaphysically special about you because like you ran into this really important mentor in your life at a certain important time, or like you didn't get injured or you didn't have to care for like a sick relative. I don't think that kind of thing makes you deserve to enjoy a great deal more power than someone who the other thing happened to. And that's why it's so objectionable is because the stakes are so high. Because of the uh, luck involved in success. Right. So if like, yeah. it, if we're saying, oh, it's meritocracy, you know, some people should make 80 grand, some people should make 60 grand. Yeah. I don't care. Sure. Let's say it's for skill and, and, and effort. It doesn't matter. But if we're like saying, oh, like Jeff Bezos's talent and effort means he should be worth literally billions of times more than other people mm-hmm. and other people like, you know, are sleeping outside. Like, no, I don't. So uh, that's really interesting. So is any, I, I just want to ask you, in the kind of fucked up wealth disparity that we find ourselves in now, are, are there people in good faith making the claim that a Bezos figure mm-hmm. actually deserves that? So what I'm wondering is mm-hmm. if, like, how do we get from some kind of much less radical notion of what people deserve, right? So you're, you do nothing, you, you're a layabout, you're a pothead from 16 to 30 and you don't mm-hmm. bother, right? Mm-hmm. Therefore, maybe you don't deserve to make $100,000 a year. 
versus Bezos not deserving what he does because it's just somehow radically disproportionate. So in other words, is there, is there, and I'm being a devil's advocate because I don't actually believe this, but I'm wondering if there's like a way in which some idea like proportionality can come into play that would work in tandem with a notion of like dessert essentially or merit tiered meritocracy that's good thanks david is there such a thing as a tiered meritocracy or is the is the the basic question is like is is this so conceptually flawed like from the bottom up that we need to move towards a different system or is this is the problem actually a lack of proportionality with respect to effort and outcome i think that the the lawyers love to talk about proportionality right it solves everything that Uh, and I think I might be answering a different question than you asked. Okay, no, please. But to make meritocracy, you know, to make it make sense, it's going to depend a lot on context. So mm-hmm. I think it's like careers open to talents. People, you know, give the position of the person who's going to be good at it. That just makes sense if you're running some kind of enterprise of any sort, right? But it's when you start using it as like a justification for like people's overall position in society. Yeah that it makes no sense because there's no conception of merit that I can attach to like the differences of status that that exist in the world because merit is so uh, like, I don't want to say subjective, but like people disagree on it. There's a lot of different kinds of merit and value. And so I don't see how you're going to place dollar values and power values on the different merits. Okay. So can I flip, the question and talk about it negatively in terms of what people don't deserve. So we can talk about this in terms of what people don't deserve, right? So this is kind of the idea of maybe this is something like, tell me if this is right. If there's something like the idea of lowest common denominator or floor upon which everyone should leftists will, I hate using that word, but whatever, so-called leftists will talk about (laughs) the need for, they'll often use human rights language in order to, to make this argument. It'll be something like, well, no matter what you've done or haven't done in your life, by virtue of being human in society, you deserve um, basic health care, housing, sure. uh, whatever, right? Like, and So is there a way of kind of flipping that and talking about what everyone deserves? Or is that a different conversation in fact? Oh, in I terms think, of like basic minimum. Right. But that, I mean, that is a type of dessert that yeah. has nothing to do with merit, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you can say... You can have different distribution principles, like you can distribute things according to merit, according to need. In this case, there's a floor that no one should fall below. That's need. Um, Although it is, though, right? Because we say that humans are special or whatever, and we're dessert, you know, like we have a, some kind of dignity that, or maybe that's going too far. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I'm just saying yeah. it's a totally different yeah. um, distributive right. principle than the one okay. that's behind meritocracy. Yeah. And actually, I don't know, like, how coherent it is to say that because there's going to be, like, certain circumstances when you can't meet you know, all the things like there is going to probably be a circumstance in the future post climate holocaust <laughs> that, uh, you know, good secondary education will not be available for everyone, human rights or not, you know? And then there's questions of like UBI versus <laughs> welfare state. And that's, that's a whole different yeah. Uh, yeah. argument. And I think that's, that goes to what your question is. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. The difference between sort of the liberal, and I use that term loosely, I don't mean it in the, you know, sort of, you know, capital sense, but. Liberal meritocracy that we see, like sort of the Obama meritocracy, uh-huh. and sort of the right-wing libertarian meritocracy. Oh, great question! Yeah, tell me more about the liberal meritocracy. So I think there's sort of a liberal meritocracy, and this is maybe because I have a Washington orientation. Is that there's kind of this thing is that says that people who are in power they have they're there because they're smarter. They you know they went to Harvard, you know. No disrespect to going to Harvard or Cambridge. I'm the prole amongst us, so I I feel like I can speak on this. But there's this idea that, you know, smart people are are in power and we should trust them, you know, sort of in a technocratic way. Uh And then there's this idea that there's a separate idea that there's sort of capitalists in in the right wing sort of idea that capitalists have money because they deserve the money they have, even if it's inherited. And so there's sort of dual meritocracies, I think. Uh Uh-huh. And do you see how that, that operates? And does that sort of enter into your thinking? Can I ask you a related question? So for the libertarians, because I really am interested but struggle with the libertarians, like, is the idea there that there's something, we talked about just like this invisible hand, whatever, like before, but the idea that there's something structural that connects to the merit of capital under certain circumstances. In other words, there's a merit that would be divorced from individual working towards and more connected to a structure 
an economic structure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or, I, I think it Cause I'm trying, I'm struggling to figure out what they mean by that. Right. Like, well, I think they are too. Okay. I think they are too. I Go think Cliff. I, yeah. So I guess I will return yeah. to the original question, which is, do you see differences amongst the people that you interact right. with or, or the people that you've, you know, sort of observed where you see good sort of liberal people who believe in meritocracy who would say, oh, yeah, billionaires shouldn't have all this money, but also I deserve my job because I'm better. Yeah, of course. Everyone thinks that. So that's why I think that, like, the billionaire stuff is kind of a red herring. That's just first, you know, that's the thin end of the wedge, seeing people, okay, maybe they don't deserve it. And then, but eventually I want to say that, like, nobody really deserves anything. And what you have is because chance plays such a role in, like, what people get, that, like, a lot of what you have is, like, a gift and you should be thankful for it. And not like something that's like yours attached to you physically. And if you ever have to give any away, it's going to be like an injustice and an outrage. And that's how people feel about taxes. And yeah. anytime someone's trying to take away the, the child support, or tra- child <laughs> support okay, right. often. Uh, um, Poor R. Kelly. It's not. Yeah. Rest in peace. <laughs> so, so that's great. So then what really is going on or should go on? So dessert is a um useless way of thinking about the okay, world so and how it should be organized that's uh what i'm saying it's useful but in a very always in limited context i'm running a kid's birthday party right they're playing hide and go seek or pin the tail on the donkey i am very happy giving a prize to the winner but the prize isn't like um college education and everyone else isn't allowed to play any more of the games <laughs> it's pin the tail on the donkey is great because everyone's blindfolded yeah, yeah but I know. That's great. But it's a Perfect marriage example. structure. There's yeah. a marriage structure involved. Well, here, here's like an interesting example. So the piece I have, like, I'm, I feel kind of weird because we're talking about all this like philosophy meritocracy stuff, which I didn't really, like, I never really taught that. I, and I didn't get that much into it in this piece, yeah. right? So I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle, and I do think everything I said is true, and then it's like a oh, little shit. But um, there's a secondary point that I make in the article that I thought was interesting mm-hmm. because I'm like sour against people who believe they deserve stuff in life, which is that there's all this psychological research now that says like, look, it's not just that we don't deserve it. It's just that like actually believing that kind of makes people shittier. Yeah. And when I was talking about the, the birthday game parties and like, you're like, well, you know, it's, it's just chance. And you're like, well, there is a merit structure. So there's this really, <laughs> right? We're dicks too. There's, there, there, no, there, well, there's, there's this really Welcome interesting experiment from uh, <laughs> Beijing University. And what they had, you know, um, they have the ultimatum game. And this is like a common psych economics game. And they say, okay, you make, you, here's $100, make an offer to the other person. They can uh, decline it or accept it. And if you're an economist, you're like, I will offer them $1 because it's more rational that they accept a dollar. <laughs> um but only economists are trained hard enough to be psychopaths like that. And most people offer between 40, 50%, right? That's just, they've repeated it a million times. And if, if you're in a lab and someone gives you a hundred bucks and like, look, offer, you're, you're going to split it with the other person. What do you offer them? Uh, they can refuse if they don't like the offer. Usually it's around half. Now they did this, these psychologists did this experiment and like, okay, before you play this ultimatum game, uh, we're going to have you play this game of skill. They have a line and there's a bunch of dots scattered on each side of the line. And they say, hey, so guess guess which side has more? And they guess. And they just assign it randomly. They like, it was a false skill test, right? They tell some people they were right and they tell some people they are wrong. And as soon as people were in that mode that they played a skill game before, they wouldn't offer as much. They weren't making even offers anymore. They're like, I'll take 80. I'll take, you know, it was a big difference just because they're like, well, I played this game, which was fake. And they became a lot more selfish. And there's like several Did they succeed like in the selfishness? So they also profited from it. Well, that, so were, were the losers more likely to accept a bad offer? Yes. Okay. Right? And there's like a few uh, studies in different fields. It's super interesting that like even if you get people to like, if you prime them with this idea of skill and merit before, they're willing to accept a much worse outcome for themselves. Incredible. Whether it's actually the case or not. That's a really jarring sort of study, especially in the Chinese context where it's supposed to be egalitarian society. And you know they're doing all these social testing. Mm-hmm. And like that's going to end up in an algorithm someday. Yeah, well, I mean, 
there's egalitarianism and there's egalitarianism, right? Like, yeah, well, uh, some things are more equal than others. Uh, right? yeah. Chinese civil service yeah. kind of invented the whole, <laughs> like, careers open to talents, yeah. uh, exam-based structure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll affect, it'll yeah. affect their, their, their social credit score eventually. Right. Um, yeah, so... This I mean, is very like, bleak. Kind of... I'm feeling very negative. <laughs> About... Um, I'm not sure what to say. Uh, yeah, I... Okay, great. And so, but... Moment. It's what? It's our Fight Club moment. Fight Club? Why? So at the end of Fight Club, they, uh-huh. they choose to get everyone down to zero uh, by basically blowing up the, the credit card company's debt and things like that. I'm not advocating that, uh-huh. of course. But there is a point where you realize that a lot of these sort of measures that are not equal and they're not real, they're kind of fake meritocracies. Yeah. You realize that, oh, I've bought into this, but actually buying into this is a problem. Yeah, but yeah, buying into the idea that like wherever you are in life, and that counts for the bad positions too, right? So one of the yeah. big arguments against meritocracy is like, look, people are already having a hard time if they're not in a really privileged position, and now you're telling them it's because they're stupid and lazy. Like, fuck off. If someone's out there like working three jobs, they're putting in as much effort as anyone. Yeah. And there's no reason to like think that their labor is all of a sudden worthless. Yeah. Uh, ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> this is a um, fascinating. So I, think, I don't you want to transition? I think because this has gotten pretty bleak, but I, I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, of actual merit. I think contrapoints is someone who deserves a little merit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cliff wrote this great piece in the Atlantic, which came out uh, in January, called Con- "Contrapoints: <laughs> Is Political Philosophy Made for YouTube?" So, Cliff, uh, who's Contrapoints? Contrapoints is she's a YouTuber, kind of a leftist YouTuber, makes political ph- philosophical YouTubes, has been doing it maybe for like two years, and. They're just, like, really great, entertaining, highly produced YouTubes about, like, controversial political topics, trans issues, gender stuff. Is America still racist? Answer yes. (laughs) And through it all, there's, like, a ton of meta-commentary about just what it's like to be having these kinds of debates on the internet. And she's a trans woman who did her whole transition on YouTube during the course of this channel, Mm -hmm. which is, like, a very exposed and vulnerable position to be in. Yeah, incredible. I had done a so episode three we had done with it's kind of a trans non-binary episode, and I talked to both of those guests beforehand about contrapoints. We didn't get into it in the actual substance of the thing, but it was all based on having read your piece and everything. So I, I really think people should read the piece. And it, you tell me we started the conversation before we were recording. You're talking about like, oh, how do we deal with these great ideological divides? Right. So right. So rephrase that in a way that. Take is what you the, actually meant. Uh, the inimitable Professor yeah. Matthews, for example, <laughs> right? Um, talking about like no, like really controversial stuff, uh, Me Too, sex stuff, and doing it publicly and not like just in a seminar room, right? Yeah, you're in popular publications on Twitter, and I bet you catch your fair deal of shit. Am I right? Yes. That's um, correct. <laughs> yeah. So I created a bot to deal with some of that. Have you seen the bot? I, I was one of your first, the first users right, of the bot. Right, right. This is wonderful. <laughs> see, so you know about the bot. Yeah. I think the bot actually, so. Tell us about the bot. No, but I think the bot plays into part of that. So, because the bot plays into a similar, uh, or tries to, I think, do, I didn't, I'm not responsible for the bot. The bot does some kind of contrapoint, I, mean, I hate to say that, but some kind of contrapoints like move in the sense that it's trying to be very funny in order to deal with the shit that you just mentioned, right? Uh-huh. And it sounds really simplistic to be like, oh, I'm a woman who's going to deal with men's shit by, like, automating responses. I actually, I actually thought of Natalie while I made Did you? Yes, I did. Oh, I, my God. Okay, so yeah. now everyone's going to hear from yeah. new American husband, <laughs> David Slavic. We had a shotgun wedding. Um, Where, um, we didn't, it's I'm not pregnant. Love. We, it's, not, it was, it's <laughs> <laughs> God bless, it'd be great. But, but in part, in part due to this bot, because it was a Valentine. Oh, this is beautiful. Yeah. So we hadn't met, and David is, I don't know, trying to... Yeah, I was a little thirsty. A little thir- uh-huh. So he made yeah. the bond. It's well, really excellent been. work. I know, right? <laughs> so I had noticed her so interacting uh, online, and she was kind of like using a lot of her time to do emotional labor for men who were less smart than her. Uh-huh. And I I realized that I saw that happening a lot. And, um, oh, I'm just as, so... I'm, du- I'm a dummy. As someone who's... who's <laughs> 
and, and really allied with a lot of like sort of left women. I've seen this happen time and time again. And what I realized is that people had commodified sort of interactions online. In doing so, men were reacting in a commodified way to women, but women were then giving earnest labor sort of response. You look uh, outraged. No, you, not Were you mad someone called your labor earnest? <laughs> no, I mean, maybe. She's never earnest. <laughs> I'm too, well, here's the, I'm too, way too earnest. That's cool. You're totally right, because I'm too earnest. Okay, go ahead. So what it, one of the things that I really admired about Natalie from ContraPoints was that she had to actually address some of this sort of Dale maleness in, uh-huh. in, a, in a really interesting way. Where you just have people like firing these sort of talking points they're getting from Ben Shapiro and uh, Thaddeus Russell, God bless, and, <laughs> and other people. And, uh, friend of the pod. You know, friend of the pod, and I do listen to him and I like him. But, you know, there's, there's sort of a, an automation of response that people are having intellectually online and typically addressed towards women. I created the bot to, to do that. But what I wanted to ask you is that you saw that Natalie is doing political philosophy in a format that is totally sort of seated with dummies. Yeah, but not just dummies, like hostile dummies. Hostile and dummies. even hostile smarties, yeah. right? I just, like, I, I, I discovered I discovered ContraPoints because Facebook somehow recommended ContraPoints Dank Meme Stash to me. So shout out to Dank Meme Stash. Algorithm work. Yeah, and I don't know why I clicked, because I've never clicked anything that Facebook advertised to me. And then I opened a video, it's half an hour long, and I've never watched a half hour long video, but I, I, I watched the first three minutes, I'm like, what, what, is, what is going on? Yeah. And so like, I'm a political theorist who's trying to find a way to talk to more people. I'm like, holy shit, this is what I'm seeing. And the more I watched, I was like, she's just mashing, it seems like she's just like mashing the hottest buttons in like the culture war. Yeah. And so what should happen is she should just be getting flooded with everyone yelling at her, freaking out and getting like dragged all the time. Yeah. And she's you know, hitting the finishing move over and over again. Maybe for, for maybe that happens a bit, in, in right? Hiking. Yeah. But she like I found that instead of just being good at fighting and being a polemicist, she was really doing open-ended philosophy in a lot of cases and seeing it done it struck me how difficult it must be to do divided ideological times there's just like this gravitational pull that will suck you in you have to pick sides you have to figure out who's your friend and who's your enemy and it sucks and it's hard to have conversations and it's really hard to be in between right so that's like as you know yeah i'm asking you in particular right (laughs) but you're my guest (laughs) yeah are you in between too yeah well, I, I just wouldn't want to talk about anything that controversial. Oh, really? No, I, I. Well, meritocracy. I mean, God bless. <laughs> I'm helping everyone the... believe yeah. the right thing. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. Wait till you get the blowback from that, buddy. Um, I'm, I'm fine with it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's hard to be in between. I, I. So I watched Natalie's most recent video called I think it's just called The Darkness, yeah. and it's and it was like the fucking perfect video. To proceed our talk, actually. I mean, I mean, I mean, they're all good, whatever. But like, all of them could serve as fodder. But she's trying to unpack what's funny in the context of the culture wars. In other words, to unpack all, outrage culture as it happens. I hate. I mean, I don't believe in that. I'm just using the word. Like, mm-hmm. not everything's a culture. Whatever. Outrage, <laughs> like rape culture is not a thing. Outrage culture is not a thing. Whatever. But. The, the idea that um, there's outrage on both sides, right? So the snow, uh, this is her language from the video. Everyone should watch it. The fucking snowflakes will get mad when you make a joke about some disaffected or minority group. Mm-hmm. The right something non-SJW type people are going to get mad when you limit their free speech or tell them they're not being PC enough. And mm-hmm. there's no way of navigating this space, right? And her be- the beautiful thing about her was she's like, look, I fucking live on the edge of that space. And I think for, and, and her position, I mean, if I'm getting it right, was that in part, like being a trans person contributes to the living on the edge all the time because there's something absurd about her positionality in the world uh-huh. with what she's doing. But I also find that like true of myself, right? So you know that people call me a crypto fascist. Yeah. But like that's like, that. that's absurd. Crypto means I don't need proof, right? Seriously, there's... <laughs> I was, yeah, I have been trying to articulate. Cliff Mark. Uh, yeah. I'm using, I'm using Everybody. I use it all the time, though. 
<laughs> but I, I should I think, use it more. I think that's been to my students. It's <laughs> a crypto argument you got there. We actually <laughs> had this discussion the other day where I, I said, okay, you know, I understand what people mean by crypto fetish, but what do people really mean? What they really mean is I don't want to have proof. Right. Well, it's like yeah. they mean a lot of things. It's usually like I don't like you. I don't agree with you. I want to call you a fascist, but you're not wearing your swastika today. So, <laughs> so to go back to Heidi's question, I, so the sort of the liminality of transness leads to yeah. an idea where she actually can walk those lines. Uh-huh. When you were inspired to write the, the article yeah. about uh, contrapoints, you let's get back to your point. Yeah. Is that yeah. What were you thinking, and, and what really inspired you for that? Philosophy and conversation of the kind that, like, we might hope to have, or people think, you know, everyone's like, you know, what we really need to do is sit and have a conversation, like, really listen to what each other are saying and get to under- understand each other's viewpoints, etc. To do that or to do philosophy, like, requires some kind of openness and like tearing your opponent's butthole to shreds. Like tearing your opponent's butthole to shreds is not necessarily always the use of reason, right? Um. So anyway. You know, you need the, you need this openness. You need to be able to chat. Philosophy requires it. And there's none of that in, like, ideological culture warfare. And so that she was doing something that was open. She was making videos, like, the aesthetic, where it's like, there's no conclusion, right? There's characters. They take different positions. There's different arguments. It's like a platonic dialogue. And she's starting conversation with the audience will continue without stating a stark ideological position. Um it seems so hard because she's just going to get yelled at. And she did. <laughs> right. And that was one of the biggest controversies for her, but that someone was, instead of just doing polemics and like talking in the genre of get a load of this asshole, which is like 80% of tweets. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's like what impressed me and got me watching. And like, I need to tell people I want to start pitching articles and now mm-hmm. uh, contrapoints. You were telling us about your edgelordism. No, no, <laughs> no. I just, I guess I, that's ridiculous. Like, I want to kill myself what? right now. Like, that's a horrible thing. Call yourself an edgelord, like some kind of moron. Like, no, I no, don't... Well, that was... Well, that you were quoting Natalie, right? No, like, I know. But, well, she... Like... Yeah, no, you're right. And so she was saying she... Well, she's an edge she, person and that... No, but... Yeah. We all need to be kinder to ourselves, you know? And it's... A, but the the thing is, it, it, how, how she makes sense or makes peace of... I think for, so in her, again, this is my remembering and interpretation of the thing that I just watched, but to say, she's saying that being on the edge in a way is a release. Like it's not an opposite, necessarily a adversarial opposition. What am I trying to say? A name, an attack posture right. necessarily. Right. So people think that being an edgelord or something, that's a stupid word, but being edge, whatever, something controversial means that you're like on the attack. Yeah. And I think what fascinated me about her video today was was her positioning that as a kind of partly in in terms she actually overtly said in the survival mode, right? So she needs to be that to kind uh-huh. of as a like release valve kind of thing. Right. And 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 that release valve is a way for her to help to help her survive her kind of like liminal liminal position in society and the world. And I think for any of us who are doing like I don't know if you agree with this. Tell me uh-huh. if you do or not. But like writing is horrific for me anyway. Like writing yeah. writing is is ecstasy and the worst agony that I can come up with. Maybe, maybe not everyone has that. Yeah, I wouldn't, Attitude, I wouldn't but I... ever say it was like ecstasy for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be. Yeah, but for me, it's like the it's like a horror, and it, but it's also a thing. And then and then the idea is like, okay, me anyway. So that's that's it. Is... I don't have a question. the The idea would be that if if one is inhabiting a space where you're like trying to do a thing that's like ostensibly or at least subjectively rather very difficult to do Uh but has kind of a a payoff whether that plays out in terms of like reception or not or also just in terms of one's own experience in the world in order to do that you need to then have a space for release Uh and experience and that release and other sort of experience might be part of the work that you do or it might be something different but I mean I think for her it's part of her work but she also described it in the video as like oh calling up other trans people and calling ourselves cross-dressers right, 
right. and which was really cool. And she was like, so we do that in private, but I'm also an edge person in public. When she's saying like being edgy and like being an edge lord, that's like yeah. being controversial, pushing buttons. And so people like yeah. Ricky Gervais, right? He's like yeah. an edge lord, and people who just like, oh, are you offended by that? Mm. They're being like edgy and edge lordy. Yeah. Whereas I think the point about having like a liminal identity is a different edge that we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. Right? Fascinating parts of the piece on ContraPoints was your description of her as not arguing, but flirting. Right. Okay, so, you know, I was, I was reading a lot of Plato at the time, and I was thinking about, like, how do you persuade people? How does Plato do philosophy? And he does it two ways, right? Sometimes he's just sitting there, and know-it-alls come along, and he makes them look like assholes. Uh, and he's really ironic, and they're really kind of talking past each other. He's just humiliating them kind of for the fun of it, right? And he's not really trying to win them over. And that is most internet conversation, right? Most of the things on Twitter are like, pull someone out of context, look at this asshole, whatever. And now I know you experienced a lot of that mm -hmm. because that's how the uh, Heidi Matthews, what is it, a, a discourse bot? The Heidi Matthews on-demand male discourse bot. Uh-huh. Could you explain that? Came into being. Yeah. So it was a fully automated <laughs> mode of doing, but I, I, there are many like multi-layered. So you just described it perfectly when you said it was a way of like, uh, of, of playing out actual uh, real people on the internet by just automating it. Right. So the idea is that you can script these interactions because they inhabit these sort of like hermetically sealed spaces Right. Of um, like discourse bites so or argument bites. So of uh, internet conversation that everyone yeah. has heard yeah. is someone says kind of offense, something kind of maybe offensive. Someone gets offended by it. Um, and then the big gang of them yell at the original person. Then people get mad that someone's offended and they yell at them. Yeah. And then it kind of goes in an outrage cycle. And they say maybe we should cancel them. Right. Or something. And like and look, at, look at the excesses of the left, <laughs> etc. And so And so you have that like... You know, yeah. uh, the controversial Heidi Matthews writes something. Um, <laughs> a bunch of people come to yell at you. But that's why you invented yeah. this brilliant yeah. dis on-demand discourse bot that's that right. can answer them for you yeah. and do that whole formulaic But you know what would be great? So what's interesting, and I think this plays into the contra... So this is great because there's a gendered component that I'm also working through and not yeah. sure how to quite deal with. And I should say that like the bot was like wholly the product of David and not me. Like I don't think I could have written my own bot you know like uh -huh. i can write a lot of things but i don't think i could have written my own bot the bot was actually like almost a trans expression for me <laughs> and i'll be honest with you because it was kind of like what i saw as a man <laughs> happening but then also it's like if i was a woman how would i feel when this happened but i also want everyone to know that I had both her hands in a pillow over her face so you wouldn't hear her laughing at the last <laughs> intervention. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Which and actually, she was very surprised to see that, to, to hear that. But it, and, and a lot of it was that it was like empathy became like a, a trans expression. But it's also flirtation. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it was the thirstiest thing I ever did in my life, which is also <laughs> something. It was a thirsty online expression. So I, in essence, was embodying because it was before we ever met each other in real life. Yeah, we yeah. For, no, we had not met in real life, and he. Yeah. But the, I'm gonna write a bot to respond to thirsty online expressions, <laughs> <laughs> and by making thirsty online expressions, I just so, need to find so the I, right I, person. I, I have said a number of times that that I should have a bot for me writing the bot. Yeah. <laughs> And in 1997, Skynet became yeah. self-aware. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, that that was one of those things. And it, for me, it was a way of working through some of what I felt there was a conflict of male expressions in the modern world. But also, God damn, it's hard to be a woman. I, I mean, it just seems like that to me. I mean, I, no one yells at me a lot. I'm, I'm wrong all the time. You know, I have all sorts of controversial opinions. I was a nuclear advocate. You know, like, I, I've... I've done that, some things that, that people, out? yeah. <laughs> I've done some things that people like disagreed with. I've never been yelled out of the line. Yet Heidi, who's also doing very complicated, sort of interesting things, is yelled at constantly, or at least for a while. And not just, but we should say not just by men, like mostly by women. Yeah, actually. That's true too. So the gendered component of this is really interesting because it foists a lot of the responsibility for that weird unjustified outrage onto men uh -huh. when in fact 
a lot of most of it actually is female generated. There is a male component, like you know, for sure. But but, but it was so also do you like, find there's like different kinds of outrage coming from uh, different genders, or is it like so men are more likely to see me like because I'm a woman talking uh, about sex? Uh-huh. I must be a feminist, uh-huh. which I actually. So yeah, it's one of my controversial things. But I will say, I, like, lady. yeah, it's like real out there that I like don't identify as a feminist. I understand why that provokes outrage and rage because the people, the women who say that, are the like the woman who did you? What was that movie we watched? The Red Pill. Yeah. Have you seen this? No. Film. Just, don't uh, watch it. No, do watch it. Or, or, yeah, no, I actually, only yeah. talked to you about it on Twitter. Right, we did talk about it, yeah. <laughs> I was like, the Red Pill is, is a movie by a woman who had made two Cassie partners. J. Cassie J. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's essentially, it's supposed to be an expose of men's rights culture, but it's really like a sales pitch for men's rights culture. Yeah. Right. It's genius. Uh, and it's yeah. well, really well done. I watched it and I thought, oh no. No, it's well done, yeah. Because there's nothing sort of on the left that no. really is analogous. Um, I think everyone should watch it just to know how far the right will go in order to make a pitch. Whereas uh-huh. the left is like, we're right. No, you're right about that. So yeah. what you're saying is substantively the whole movie is wrong, but their pitch is incredible. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, incredible. And her whole thing was like, are you the... saying men shouldn't have rights? I don't, I, what I'm <laughs> saying, <laughs> I mean, what I'm saying is I don't believe in rights. Okay. Uh, well, I'll just leave that there. And so Cassie's great because she starts this film. Her whole narrative is like, I started as a feminist and then I became apprised of the fact that, you know, men were suffering too. And I looked into it and I visited them and I interviewed them and they had a point. And then at the end of the film, she comes full circle and says, I no longer call myself a feminist, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so I understand that. In the realm of public discourse today, when you say, when a woman says, I don't identify as a feminist, uh-huh. you get read automatically in the vein of some, this woman, right? Like this, this woman yeah. who is shilling for the right, mm-hmm. right? I yeah. get that. I get that. But, but there's got, but I also understand that there are like really smart invested people on the left who are thinking hard and critically about these issues and that that would entail actually unpacking what the fuck we mean by the word feminism, which by this point is basically been hollowed out of all substantive meaning. Right. Well, I mean, but tell me about feminism. Is it it hollowed out of all substantive meaning or is it just like such a big tent that there's so much in it that like, obviously it's not the same thing though. Disagreements, right? Same thing. Either feminism is hollowed out of all, of all meaning or is too wide of a tent. I mean, both might, I mean, they might be one and the same thing. I think the idea is that drawing on my also want to be controversial supervisor, Janet Halley, the idea would be that it's privileging the female experience over the male, which in other words, Halley spends a lot of time trying to figure out what the core tenets of any feminism would be across the board, right? So even if it's a big tent, what are the shared commitments? The shared commitments would be the distinction between male and female. So like this commitment to this binary opposition, the idea that something like the patriarchy would consist of the male being structurally privileged over the female you can play that out in myriad different ways, right? Uh-huh. But the idea, the basic idea would be that the male is privileged over the female, the female is oppressed, right? And then the normative commitment to what Halley calls carrying a brief, in her very legalistic language, for F. So carrying a brief for the feminine. So in light of the fact that male and female are distinct and that the male is typically structurally privileged over the female, we then need to normatively have a set of commitments that put the female interest or promotion of the female interest, not necessarily above all else, but as a priority in one set of kind of political commitments in life. Right. Uh And I think, you know, one can start to interrupt 
aspects of that from different vantage points, but I there and there are many that I want to engage. And her suggestion, she has this book, right, called Split Decisions: How and Why to Take a Break from Feminism. I make all of my students uh, in sexuality and the law read the whole four hundred pages or whatever. But it's it's an explanation of why it might be beneficial for a period of time or for certain concrete substantive policy projects to actually not privilege the categorization or positionality of being a feminist above all other positions or categorizations. And I think that that makes sense, right? So the idea is like, for now, I can say, maybe I'm not privileging my feminism in the moment, Right. Doesn't necessarily make me not a feminist. It makes me interested in asking other questions for a time. It's a lot less edgy, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> no, but this is the whole thing. It's right. it's not edgy at all. The okay. thing is, like, when you read the book, it's like, oh, fuck, taking a break from feminism is like, makes sense. Okay. Because you can, we, we all want to, we want to take moments in time to privilege different kinds of questions. That's, it's very simple, right? Right. So, like, that's amazing how, like, that just really illustrated uh the whole point we're talking about like on the internet you mentioned once you whisper i'm not a feminist everyone's on you from both sides yeah right yeah but you're like actually there's this really interesting set of questions that we can open up if we're not like i'm not speaking as a feminist right now yeah right i'm exploring different questions from different you know there's all these policies etc this is the not the only lens and so that's like a nuanced and interesting point that's going to open up tons that you can explain to me if in like a real conversation, but not in like a Twitter pile on a yelling match. Yeah. yeah. Right. And no, so yeah. how, how do we get into that conversation? Yeah. And maybe Twitter, like, so just to, maybe it's wrong to say on, maybe it's too provocative to say I'm not speaking as a feminist now on Twitter. Although I, I do try to nuance my engagements in social media. Like, I don't think I'm an idiot on social media in the sense that I do try to, like, yeah, sometimes it's provocative, but it also tends to be backed up by some kind of an explanation, right? But um, um, that being said, of course, Twitter is not the most nuanced, you know, avenue for engaging these ideas. On the other hand, it's what's fascinating, and I use it as a teaching tool, right? So I fast, so in a, a few different classes, now I've had students have the option of doing a Twitter project as part of their participation right. grade, which has been great. And so it's a way of like actually engaging the world and people, including the fact that the world is going to involve this like weird outrage uh-huh. backlash. So what, do they have to go out and get ratio? <laughs> Nobody. I mean, they're all very good, but but um, I don't know. Yeah, I wanted to backtrack and say maybe it's wrong of me to say those things in a space that is not necessarily conducive to full articulation of what one means. On the other hand, we're in a world in which people don't read and they read bite-sized bits. And if you want to provoke their curiosity, yeah, I find that sometimes that kind of engagement can help. To bring it back to the, like we were talking about about contra points, like yeah. there's a that's a really interesting way to like get people's attention. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're saying you can get a deeper engagement, like if you lead with the long speech that your students are forced to listen to, no offense, like <laughs> forced, you know, it's not direct coercion, but <laughs> they there, there are plenty of interests at work that have them in that seat right then. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get uh, you're not going to get someone's attention with that um, if they're just like a stranger on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how do you get their attention, but then also like draw them into a conversation? Yeah. And one of the ways is to be like a little bit trolly, like a, mm-hmm. bit, uh, a bit edgy. And you're like, yeah, look, I've said this thing, but you have it backed up by something, right? When they like come at you, yeah. you're like, you can either have the automated, uh, you know, bot conversation or, <laughs> or you can like have the real conversation, eventually get people in. Mm-hmm. And so um, like in, in the article, in the piece that I wrote, and I was talking about Socrates and like how he does it. You know, I was saying there's two ways of talking. The one I was talking about earlier is like the discourse bot one where he's just like kind of being automatic or tearing people down or humiliating. We see that all the time. It's mm-hmm. like you take some things out of context, you twist people's words, and you just kind of make them look foolish, but you don't go anywhere. But then he has these other kinds of conversations. Um, like in the Phaedrus where he's like out at the river with like this cute guy and, you know, that guy loves speeches, but he wants to get him more interested in philosophy. And um, then... Socrates is like much more of a seducer, right? So you have Alcibiades, who's like the hottest guy in all of Athens, just in love with him, freaking out, 
um, in the symposium and like, how does Socrates do it? Right. He, he like engages people. He does this trolley stuff with the other people, but then once he has people's interest, like he can take people deeper and deeper. Um, and so I thought, I think that like, that's really, uh, what Natalie's trying to do, what ContraPoints is trying to do. She makes you feel special. Like, you're the only person in the room, and I think that's that's what uh, Socrates did as well. But also, that's, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about her chosen medium, right? She talks about people watching her videos on YouTube, and they're like, when they do a showing, that's weird. Um, YouTube, you are supposed to be the only person in the room. She imagines it speaking to a college student with their laptop alone in the room at night. Yeah. And, and so that that whole seductive vibe works really well in that. And that's why I think she's told me anyway, that she's had such a terrible time on Twitter because that is your conversations are all public. Um, and you never have that degree of privacy and intimacy that you need to really like have a real conversation. It's one-to-one versus one-to-many. And, and that's, that's really important. And also the framing and the, just the visual aspect, you see her head, you always make eye contact. Yeah. Like the camera is always put in a certain way where you feel like you're making direct eye contact. When she's talking, it's like you and I are talking right now and it has that sort of like intimacy. Right. So I think there's like, there's different conversation situations. And so I wonder like Heidi on Twitter with this strategy of like getting people kind of mad and maybe engaging compared to like in the classroom compared to in popular writing, like how do you see uh, differences in how you can like engage people in real conversations? Like where is it? hard and where do you get in just in fights oh yeah oh well thanks for interviewing me Clark. Well, well. <laughs> it's interesting content <laughs> i think so i'm actually really just working through that i don't have an answer like i mm-hmm. my classroom you know this right the classroom depends on who's in it right? so whatever i do in my classroom is definitely not the norm not to say that i'm in any way particularly innovative but certainly the, the norm of law school is to like learn rules and stuff. And, and of course it's progressed much beyond that. My colleagues are amazing and everything, but I do hear regularly, oh, like we have to ask questions that we don't generally have to ask. Okay, so one interpretation of my conduct online is to call it oppositional defiance disorder. <laughs> Another would be that it's sparking productive and engaged and dare I say authentic discussion. And I actually think there's a real, I do think there's a real value to just being upfront about what one means. And the part of the problem, and I'm totally riffing now, part of the problem with responses to things that I might say in public, so the sorts of responses that would be like, you're a rape apologist or a victim blamer, whatever, are actually not rooted in any sort of authenticity. And that's a horrible word. I get it, but for lack of a better word, the and and it's it's, it's rooted in as we just talked about this like prefab script, this prefab ideological culture war script, this place of safety, right, where one doesn't have to be vulnerable or make themselves fully known or seen to their interlocutor. And I'm I wonder whether part of the like worry and actual objection is rooted in a fear of just being open and available for a real conversation. So you think people are more afraid of opening themselves up to real conversation yeah. than to being cast out by, okay, so he, uh, cast out by their own team is what I was going to say, but here's the thing. Cause I don't think anyone really fears getting yelled at by the other side. Yeah. As much. Yeah. Or at least in, when I was speaking, when I was like reading up all the Natalie's interviews and stuff, it wasn't that. She always expected to get shit on by the right and have a tons of transphobia. But what hurt was getting dragged by like trans Twitter. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. And so, I mean, that's why, you know, you were saying earlier, it's so tough to be in the middle. It's easy to be a polemicist far on one side because you know who your friends are and you're already protected from the enemy. It's like going out into, you know, no man's land where you might not be able to like go back in, I think is, is the scary part. So I think that's probably why people can be really, really worried to engage in any kind of authentic conversation. Because if you do it in public, you don't know where you'll wind up. Yeah. Yeah. Real scary. 
Cliff. Fun talk. My super fun. <laughs> I'm so happy to have met you IRL. <laughs> Cliff, where can... So we're going to have you back, obviously. Awesome. And now we're best friends. And uh, where can people find you and your work and etc. and your forthcoming political theory or not podcast, depending on what you decide? Right. No, it'll, uh, okay. <laughs> so lots of stuff. A Clifton underscore Mark is, I believe, my Twitter. And you can find me there. I don't really post that much because I don't have the public speaking courage that you do necessarily. <laughs> um, a lot of my writing is on uh, CBC Life. So if you go on CBC Life and search Clifton Mark, you can find out everything I write about relationships, selfies, stuff like that. Wellness, how to organize your email. Uh, all sorts of stuff. Oh my God, I need a personal tutorial on email. <laughs> You know, you... I have like 27 You're an academic. Emails. I don't know. You talked about writing being torture. <laughs> it would take like a year at least for me to push out an academic article. And like just the satisfaction of filing something and having it disappear from your life in less than forever is... Um, oh, beautiful. And so check out the ContraPoints thing. If you're interested in ContraPoints, it's in the Atlantic under what is it? ContraPoints is political philosophy for YouTube. Mm -hmm. And... I've got that rant against meritocracy where I'm telling everyone who thinks they deserve what they have in life that either they're an asshole for thinking they deserve it or if it hasn't gone well, then look, it's not your fault and don't let them tell you otherwise. And that will be in Eon, which is an online magazine with essays and stuff. And that should be out March 8th. And I've been told they're going to open the comment thread for that one. So come and say some wacky shit. Uh, I'll be there. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, Cliff. Thank you, Adi. <laughs>